Hello, and welcome to Cool Story Guys. I'm Jeff. I'm Ethan. And Ethan, summer is coming to an end. It is. Fall is at our doorstep. And that means that certain people are going to stumble across our podcast that absolutely weren't looking for two guys writing an unpredictable fantasy story. (laughs) Indeed. Going under the hood a little bit here. When you publish a podcast, you need to put in keywords so that people can find your show based on relevant searches. We are writing a fantasy story. This is a fantasy podcast. There aren't so many other fantasy podcasts out there. Yep. But do you know what there are a lot of, Ethan? Fantasy football podcasts. Fantasy football. There are way more fantasy football (laughs) podcasts than there are fantasy writing podcasts. And right now is the time when everyone is drafting for their fantasy football league. True. You ever play fantasy football? I did. I played it to a point that I had to step away from it because it was getting very addicting. Uh, My father-in-law had Red Zone, which for those who don't know, basically you have one screen on a big TV and it has basically every game and all the highlights. And I just watched that for eight hours at a time. So I had to step away from it um, via the guidance of my wife. I didn't play fantasy football last year for the first time in over a decade, but I watch Red Zone every yep. Sunday. Yep. It's it's totally addictive. Yep. And playing fantasy football means that you're invested in all of these things that you otherwise wouldn't be. Yeah. I care about my hometown Seattle Seahawks, but when you're playing a game where you have people from all of these other teams who are just screaming, throw it at my guy yeah. at all of these games that you don't care about otherwise. The worst moment for me was when... The Colts were playing the Jaguars, and there was a running back called Maurice Jones-Drew who absolutely gave our horrible run defense, you know, nightmares. Mm -hmm. But he was on my team, and I was cheering against my Colts, but for this guy, and I just stepped away at that point. I was like, this feels so, so wrong. Yeah. I've played for like 10 years, and I only won once, and the year that I did win was a perfect season. But I was I was already living in Berlin at that point, and the Seahawks were good that year, and they had to win their game at home against the Rams. But I had the Rams running back, Todd Gurley, on my team, and I got to watch in person as he just eviscerated my home team to give me a perfect season and my only win. And it was the most bittersweet Peric victory I could have ever had in rooting for sports. It sucked, but it was also amazing. Yeah. <laughs> My wife was always in my fantasy football league, too. And it was like me and my wife and eight of my boyfriends. And my wife won every year. Yeah. So I think they're pretty glad that she's not in it anymore because she was just a shark. Well, I mean, she is our sort of business manager as well on this podcast. So I imagine that basically anything she does, she does really well. So Yeah, almost all of the good ideas in this show were come up by by my wife. So in honor of fantasy football, starting back up. And the fact that I am back in the game this year, and that there is a small chance someone is now listening to this podcast because it has the word fantasy in the description, (laughs) we're going to do a new segment right here at the top of the show. (laughs) It is called The Fantastic Names of Notable Men. (laughs) In this game, I'm going to tell you a name. Yeah. And you are going to tell me whether it is the name of a character from fantasy or science fiction literature or the name of a real-life NFL player. Okay. (laughs) If you get it right, you have a chance for a bonus point by saying whether they come from a fantasy or sci-fi book, or whether they play offense or defense on their football team. Okay. Now, before we start, how confident are you... Because you actually watched football, so you you might know some of these names. You've read books. You might know some of those names. How confident are you? I'm... I'm a man that lacks a lot of confidence, usually on a day-to-day basis. So I'm going to say 50%. <laughs> I think if we talk about anything like circa 2000 and 
10 and before, I'm probably okay football-wise, but I, I couldn't tell you who is who is the guy right now in the NFL. And as we spoke about on the last podcast, my reading um, has been lacking as of late. So yeah, I'm gonna give myself a 50%. I think I'll do fine. No one will, no one will be proud of me, but that's fine. I'm proud of you, Ethan. I'm, well, always, I'm always proud of you. <laughs> okay, let's start. First name, Ambrose Jackis. That is definitely a name from a sci-fi novel. It's, it's fantasy, but yes, you can just say book or NFL. Okay. But you said you, you said sci-fi and it was fantasy, so you don't get the bonus point. Okay, well, I get, one point's good for one me. One point. That's good, though. You got the first <laughs> one right. Valentine Smith. That's football. No. Valentine Smith is the protagonist at Robert Heinlein's Stranger in a Strange Land. Wow, okay. <laughs> Equiminius St. <Saint> Brown. <laughs> I'm going to go NFL. That is correct. And does he play offense or defense? I'm going to say offense. Correct. Two points. He is a current wide receiver for the Green Bay Packers. Okay. Great name. Yeah, great name. I wanted the Seahawks to draft him just because he had such a good name. (laughs) Duncan Idaho. That sounds like a book and it's sci-fi. That is correct. He is sword master for House Atreides in Dune. Wow. Yeah. Good name, though. Good, strong name. Man, these Yeah, so I, I did some of these were like total fantasy names, and some of them were like good, strong protagonist names. Yeah, yeah. Like Captain Munnerlin. Ooh. Uh, I'm going to go with book fantasy. Wrong. Cornerback, Carolina Panthers. <laughs> That's I mean, Captain is one of those ones that could go either way. That's it's great. I, I've heard that before. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Max Strong. Max Strong. Okay, that's a tough one. I, there's got to be a fantasy character called Max Strong. I'm going to say book, sci-fi. Fullback, Seattle Seahawks. <laughs> Perrin Ibarra. That is a book, fantasy. Yes, Perrin Ibarra is one of the main protagonists in Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time books. Okay. Aurelius Venport. Book, fantasy? Book, sci-fi. Okay. Close part of the spacing guild in the dune series okay orleans darkwa i'm gonna take a gamble and go football offense correct he was a running back he played for the giants frosty rucker frosty rucker book sci-fi defensive end cincinnati Bengals. one of the all-time greatest football names i love it's frosty spelled with two e's too it's just one of the best names ever awesome yeah aldrich gladius Wow, that is one of the stronger ones. I have to say book fantasy. Uh, That is correct. Well, I actually haven't read uh, Jim Butcher's Codex Alera series, and I can't remember whether or not it was fantasy or sci-fi, so you get the point, because I don't remember. Okay. (laughs) Roz I. Dowling. Football defense? Correct. Cornerback for the Patriots, even though he sounds like a Batman villain. He does sound like a (laughs) Batman Quindor Shandis. Quindor Shandis. I had a friend named Quindor Shandis in fourth grade. <laughs> I don't know. He wasn't, what is, wasn't much of a sportsman. I'm going to go with book fantasy. Book sci-fi. Okay. He was the 25th first speaker of the second foundation in Isaac Asimov's foundation trilogy. Oh, okay. Coming soon to television. Yeah, yeah. Quentin Jammer. Football defense only because quentin jammer should be a defensive guy he is he yeah was, he was good. a cornerback for the broncos okay. also one of the great all-time football names good <laughs> ronald rust ronald rust book sci-fi uh book fantasy 
He is part of Terry Pratchett's Discworld series. Okay. Bakari Rambo. That has to be NFL offense. NFL defense. Okay. But yes, you are correct. A man named Bakari Rambo has a name too good to be written into a book. (laughs) Jack Youngblood. Jack Youngblood. Wow. Book fantasy. Defensive end, Los Angeles Rams. He's a Hall of Famer, too. He's just an old, he's an older player. But yeah, one of the strongest human names for one of the strongest humans ever put on this planet. Youngblood is really good. It makes you think about like, that's that's a pure guy. Yeah, and and the name Jack just means like, there's some fortitude to you, especially, oh, yeah. and if it's Jack Youngblood, you're going to be an NFL Hall of Famer. Oh, yeah. Guaranteed. Yeah, yeah. Farquhard Campbell. Oh, man. Campbell confuses me on this one, definitely. I'm going to go with book sci-fi. Book fantasy. He is Jocasta's loyal friend in Diana Gabelson's Outlander series. Okay. Jarek Carnelian. Ooh, um, okay, I recognize Carnelian. That's book sci-fi? Uh, yes. He is the protagonist of a bunch of novels, An Alien Heat, The Hollow Lands, and The End of All Songs by Michael Moorcock. Okay. Now, that's a strong name. That is a very strong name. <laughs> Final one. Okay. Earthwind Moreland. Ooh. I have a feeling that you would end this on a football one. So I'm going to say football offense. Football defense. He was a cornerback for the New England Patriots, but you are correct. Cool. Yeah. Earthwind Moreland absolutely sounds like a character from a sci-fi or fantasy book, but in reality, it's just somebody whose parents were really into earth, wind, and fire. Oh, I guess that is true. Yeah. I, I, yeah now that I, think, I kind of thought maybe his parents were like, you look really strong. We're going to have to keep you grounded somehow. So we're going to give you a, a wacky fantasy name. But yeah, earth, wind, and fire. Hey, yeah. they're awesome too. So how many, how'd you do? How many points did you get? 23. 23? Yeah. That is very good. I'm pretty happy out of a possible 40 points is quite good. This was a hard game. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I'm pretty proud of myself. I'm proud of you too. I'm going to call my mom. You should. Really, you should call your dad. Well, could you call my dad and I'll call my mom? I will call your dad and tell him that I am proud of you (laughs) for how good you did at the football game. He doesn't have to know that the football game was about books. Yeah. Okay, should we move on to our fantasy story now? We shall, though actually I do think we should have like a a side podcast where you just ask me questions about things I don't know. I would be totally into that. (laughs) Okay, thanks for listening, everybody who is here for fantasy football. We're going to talk about stories now. Yeah, (laughs) bye. So chapter 11. This chapter begins back on Delvorn before the shift. Lorena is wallowing under a tree at recess, upset that she was picked last for a game all of her classmates are playing called Raiders. She was the champion of this game at her old school, but these kids don't know that. She sees another boy who isn't playing, an Aquine kid, sitting under a tree reading a book, and decides to go and sit with him. His name is Kilu. Other kids don't know what to make of him and don't include him, but Lorena is curious to get to know him. It's her first day at this new school. Her mom has recently died, and she's been forced to move in with her grandfather on the other side of the island. Before they can really get chatting about one another, the bell rings, and so Lorena invites Kilu over for dinner at her house. She says it's no problem. Her grandfather's weird friend that he met at a bar a couple weeks before has been over for dinner almost every night since. Danvers is surprised at the ragtag crew that has gathered around his dinner table, a place where he dined alone for so many years until only recently. Kilu is amazed by the sheer size of Morwell, who jokingly intimidates the boy with his gruffness before showing a softer, inclusive attitude. Danvers tells Lorena that he's sorry she couldn't hang out learning at the docks anymore, and is curious what she learned in her first day of school. 
She responds by giving a detailed rundown of the most popular kids in her class, with insights into their personal advantages and shortcomings. Morwell and Kilo are impressed that she's picked up on all of that on her first day, though Danvers was more curious about what they had tried to teach her. Lorena says that they taught her about the history of the islands, how there was one central island long ago that eventually broke into lots and lots of little islands and drifted away. The first ones that broke off were the Outer Rings, so they're the wildest and most dangerous, but since they all came from the same original island, they're all the same people. Morwell scoffs at this, saying that some of the people out there might as well be another species, then apologizes to Kilu, but the boy insists that the Aquine aren't another species. His people's origin story is much different, and the dinner party is eager to hear it. According to the Aquine, life started in a state of chaos, with terrible creatures looking to control any other living things they could. Their shared ancestors were nothing but slaves and food, and when the point came that they were willing to fight and die instead of suffering any longer, they were saved by a higher power called the Settlers, and given a new world free from their oppressors. This new world was a utopia, where the people learned how to live together and thrive in peace and harmony, but it didn't last forever. Eventually, the people who were saved wanted power and control just like those who had once oppressed them, and as this became more and more prevalent, the creatures from their past began to reappear back in the world. The settlers gave some of their ancestors the ability to fight back, but many of the monsters couldn't be defeated, only contained. There was a terrible battle that ravaged the New World, leaving much of it charred and barren. Morwell had heard stories like this in the Outer Rings. Once the creatures were contained, the settlers covered that world with water, creating new oceans and moving the survivors to higher ground. There were those who decided to stay underwater, and underwent a transformation to guard the imprisoned monsters. These were the first Aquine. But after generations, some decided that they wanted to return to land, to the utopia the settlers had promised their ancestors. Those are Kilu's ancestors, who had lived above water for hundreds of years, and can no longer breathe underwater with their gills. Those who live on land think the underwater aquine still live in a utopia, but for all Kilu knows, there might not be any underwater aquine at all. It could all be stories. Back at school, Kilu and Lorena decide to join the game of Raiders, as long as they can be on the same team, and become a dominant force, winning every game they play together. Kilu is like an unconscious extension of Lorena, expertly blocking and facilitating for her without even needing to be told what to do. They become best friends, inseparable, two parts of the same mind. The story cuts back to Lorena in the present time, hiding under the shaman's house. She's exhausted and weary, depleted from her fight with the Arapa and constant attacks from the Vist. She wasted too much power getting to the island, which she couldn't transport to directly, and she's having trouble figuring out why exactly she wanted to come here so bad to meet the shaman, only to snap so violently when she found out he was touched. For the first time in years, she begins to long for home, and she remembers her best friend Kilu, and how effortlessly they move together, and how similar that relationship is to what she has with Fire Morwell now. It's this realization that she hasn't thought of Kilu in years— had never made that connection before, that she begins to think that something has been controlling her mind. She can't make sense of what thoughts and feelings are her own, and what, if anything, is being placed there by something else. Morwell seems to know. He rarely speaks to her, but when he does, it sounds like a million seagulls shrieking in unison from all the way down the beach, so far you almost couldn't see them at all. He keeps saying, Whisper Man. Before Lorena can make sense of what that means, Finnegan shows up, and we see the interaction between her and the former ISO officer from her perspective. She doesn't have enough energy to fight him, but the black orb at her side keeps feeding her anger, pushing her towards violence. When the Vists show up and she and Morwell are fighting them, Lorena is shocked to see a fiery projection of herself talking to the man, putting a flaming hand into his chest. She isn't speaking or controlling the projection, so who is? 
She's forced to pull her attention away to blow up a group of Viss that have swarmed on Morwell, and when she looks back, both the projection and the man are gone, and she starts to question whether she had really seen it at all. But as soon as the doubt enters her mind, so does Morwell's voice, saying, Whisperman. And then cue the unsolved mysteries music. Can we use that? Uh, well, I mean, I just made my own that reminded me of Unsolved Mysteries music. That was the that was the vibe I was going for. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, Ethan, you rolled a seven for yep. this chapter. Yep. A utopian world is described or created by an adolescent. Yep. Your mom's submission. My mom sent that in, yeah. And I rolled a 16. Goonie Squad. Goonie Squad. <laughs> which was your brilliant idea, and uh, were you sad that I got Goonie Squad and you didn't? Uh, kind of, but I liked what you did with it, let's say, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, Jeff, the most important question of this chapter that sort of made me a little bit sad is, one, explain the rules of Raiders, and two, why did you invent a fun game a month before I was leaving? Well, there had to be something that these kids were doing, because yep. I I wanted to create this sort of parallel between a relationship that she had in the past and her relationship with Morwell. So, clearly, the game is like a version of capture the flag okay that's what but i, I imagine it more like a really aggressive version of <laughs> capture the flag where you've got like linemen you've got like blockers <laughs> who are just knocking each other on their asses yeah so that's basically it it's like you know if you if you cross the center line and somebody tags you you have to go back and you got to like get the flag which is tied around something and make it back but other kids are able to just demolish each other guarding the person who is like the the lead so, Raider. so capture the flag prior to when we were all overly influenced by Mr. Rogers. It's not Mr. Rogers' fault that we stopped <laughs> being able to bash into each other on the playground. Well, some people would have you think that. Some people would have me think that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we're not going to be able to play this game, though, are we? Well, we're too old to play this game. I, we, <laughs> if we bump into each other, we get hurt. We're old now. <laughs> Twist an ankle. Yeah. <laughs> So I did notice we had a refugee from the lost chapter that we sometimes reference. Was that meant to happen or did you just accidentally pick a name that we already No, I, I chose that on purpose because Ethan had written a very different version of chapter four, which we scrapped, but it was all about a, an Aquine boy on Koa named Kilu. And then we, we decided to go a different direction. And so I, you know, just for a little in thing with us, I decided, well, I want an Aquine boy in this chapter because I want... I, when I had to describe the utopia, I thought I should be doing this by building lore with, you know, the Aquine story of how things started because they've got a better understanding than like the capital has yeah. of, of how that works. So it only made sense to, even if it was something that only you and I knew, now everybody else knows. But yeah, Kilu was originally in a chapter of Ethan's that we scrapped. I like the single focused fan service that we are giving in this yeah <laughs> i try to trick you into thinking that like characters die and you you and you reference back things that no one will ever see so <laughs> yeah okay but speaking of the utopia we've been kind of teasing this creation story and from what has developed in this chapter are we ready to commit yes and no i think that this is as close to the real creation story as we've gotten mm -hmm. but you know there were it, it's all been sort of like slowly unraveling like you get little pieces of it from the books in hallister's library in the chapter with alinea i think that it's fair to say that this is pretty darn close to what actually happened or mm -hmm. like that's what i'm alluding to yeah but then i also give the sort of 
it's not necessarily a cop out, but at the end where Danvers says like, yeah, if you if you can't like see it with your own lived experience, then it's best to just think of it as a parable that you can sort of learn from mm-hmm. to make better decisions down the line. It's not something that you have to adhere to this being the absolute truth. Mm-hmm. So whether or not it matters that this was the exact thing that happened or that this is the story put, being put forward to sort of guide decisions down the line, that's that's as far as I'm willing to go with it. Okay, because you also contrasted that with the view that the capital has, which is a very simple scientific view of actually how the world came to be. And so I was interested in, in whether you thought it was important to have that comparison or that was just kind of a, a flavor text, let's say. Yeah, I mean, that more than anything, that's just another way of showing that the capital is always going to put themselves at the center of the story. Yeah, okay. That's yeah, that's yeah, that's a really good point. <laughs> kind of like when America uh, uh, formed from Pangaea and fought off the dinosaurs, correct? Yeah, I mean, that's what I learned in school. <laughs> this is why Danvers is so curious to hear what they're teaching Lorena these days. He wanted her to live keep learning down at the docks. (laughs) Okay, so the really cool thing about this chapter is you start to realize the sort of inherent level of intuition that Lorena has. We felt a little bit about that in your chapter, chapter three, where she you could tell she could handle herself, but now you see she can handle herself and she's really aware of what's going on around her. Were you using this to kind of parallel what happened later in the chapter? Or are you trying to build up this idea that she is not just some angry teenager, but she has a potential to be a very dangerous antagonist? Kind of both. I okay. mean, I always wanted Lorena to be the sort of character that can totally fend for herself and is really clever and figures things out easily, but also is strong-headed and is exactly the sort of person that would not believe that they are being controlled by something else because they are too strong to be controlled by something else. Gotcha. So her being really, really good at things and then being angry when things aren't going her way are sort of just a precursor to this thing that is totally way more powerful than her using her as a vessel and her being unwilling to accept that that's the reality of things. Okay. Okay. We haven't touched on this idea, but there is a lot of, let's say, coincidences that are happening in this story. Is there any bit of destiny that's been built into this idea that Lorena may have been pre-chosen by this demon? That definitely wasn't something that I went into this chapter thinking. Okay. But there definitely is room for that in like the dream sequence that she had where, you know, that drew her to go touch this orb and unleash this primordial power. I definitely didn't go into it thinking that she was chosen to be a villain or a hero or anything like that. But I like the idea of having something like a precursor inside of you that makes it more likely that you're going to do this thing than not do this thing. How do you generally feel when people use destiny as a means of progressing a story? Not great. Okay. I think that it's an easy way out without having to think about like why someone deserves something it's very like feudal to me like oh you're the king because you were born into the king family it's like (laughs) well that doesn't mean anything john and carol king had a son (laughs) (laughs) yeah i kind of have the same uh, view on that as well though again like what you were talking about about having this kind of inherent ability or or you know to actually do the thing that you're gonna like you know if you're born rich you're probably gonna become a ceo you know what i mean or if you're a big strong guy you'll probably be playing in the nfl it's not like someone said oh 
it's you, you know? So yeah, I, I get, I like that. I like to play with that a little bit, but I was curious. I, I kind of knew your opinion on this, but I just wanted yeah, to Yeah. I mean, like I love David Lynch's version of Dune. Now mm. that we've already mentioned Dune twice in the game. A lot of, we a lot can, of Dune we, and yeah, fantasy. A lot of Dune and, well, Dune's coming out and new Dune <laughs> movies coming out. So we might as well keep talking about Dune. I'm going to put Dune in the tags with fantasy football to get more people listening They're to this be podcast. They're going to be so confused. Yeah. But it's like, you know, the end of the end of the David Lynch movie where the last line is, and how can this be? Because he is the Quisette Sederak. It's like the most just like, what? <laughs> because because he was always supposed to be the thing. Yeah. And I, it's just lazy. I yeah. mean, it's like, come on. Yeah. Well, I've kind of just uh, given myself the ability to sneak out of any future chapters where I introduce a bunch of destined people that just show up and say, hey, problem solved because I was supposed to do this. Sorry about that. You know, so thanks for letting me know, Jeff. Yeah. I won't make that mistake. Flashbacks to Morwell are really making me sad right now. Every time that he is now talking, I think we've done it a couple times up to this point, I'm kind of regretting killing him. Why did we kill him? Because the dice made us. But, I mean, he was invented just to die. But that doesn't mean that we couldn't give him more life in the story. I mean, I even when I knew that when we killed him, like he was still going to be a character in the book. He was just going to have to exist in the past. Oh, boy. I know, but and you- that's why I named Fire Morwell after him, so he lived on in Lorena's memory as well, which is sweet. Yeah, and we are seeing actually in this chapter more so than the previous ones that Fire Morwell is not just a tool for Lorena, but it's becoming a character now. Yeah, Fire Morwell doesn't necessarily have agency, but it has cognizance. Yeah, I wanted to decide and demonstrate in this chapter that Verloff and Fire Morwell were not the same thing. Yeah, but that he or it. This is this is one of the things. This this could be a corner of self doubt, but figuring out gender pronouns for yeah. things like fire monsters and ancient deities is tough work. So I I just I gave Morwell a he designation in this chapter. I believe, yeah, if only just for simplicity. Yeah, but I wanted Fire Morwell to have a bit more character to him, other than just being a puppet. Yeah, but. That character is that he is a, a another puppet of Verloff. Yeah. Like Lorena. Do you think that we're going to dig into Fire Morwell more in the future? Or do you kind of like the idea of leaving him kind of an abstract, maybe species from a past realm that doesn't exist anymore? I would like, I think that Fire Morwell at least deserves a little bit of explanation, but I don't think he deserves like a backstory chapter. Okay. But I, I think that once you decide that something deserves more attention, yeah. then you can't just not give it any more attention for the rest of the book. You have to give it at least a little bit more. But yeah, we're at the point now with the story chugging along where I don't think it would make sense. Unless Fire Morwell is going to be a linchpin in the ending of this book, yeah. in which case, absolutely, he yeah. deserves his own backstory chapter. But I feel like the roles are really going to dictate whether or not that happens. Okay. Okay, so yeah, we we aren't necessarily guaranteeing that we're going to stumble upon a um, little camp of jellyfish-like creatures having a merry old time that turn and see Fire Morwell, and there's a little bit of tear that comes down their eye. They say, that's our son. We've been missing <laughs> you for years. <laughs> I don't know why that kept popping into well, my it's mind. It's going to happen now. Yeah. I mean, the, the rule of this podcast is if we mention something yeah. earlier, later one of us is going to try to put it in. Yeah. Do, you, do, you, do you remember Whisper Man? Oh, I, I kept something was whispering into the back of my mind that that was something that we've referenced in the past. But no, I could remind me. So, OK, so we'll play the clip here. I feel like I sound pretty different between chapter one and three. 
I'm just expecting by the time to that I have to record chapter five, uh, I'm going to be like this. Whisper man. <laughs> okay, so that's back from episode seven, okay. where I was in my corner of self-doubt. My voice didn't sound the same. And I said, by the time I got to chapter five, my voice is going to sound like whisper man. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I remember. That. Yeah. Yeah, we both had kind of Whisper Man like uh, 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 episodes, so that's good. Yeah, and then and then when you did your ch- your last chapter and you had to do the voice for Verloff, yeah, and you just sort of inadvertently did Whisper Man, which how <laughs> else are you going to do the voice of a primordial demon? I was like, ooh, now I can put Whisper Man in this story. Whisper Man's been banging around in my head, like, how am I going to put him in this story as an actual character? And even if it's just a nickname for Verloff, yeah, I was really proud of myself for figuring out how to get Whisper man into the story <laughs> i just can't wait to see the, the wiki of just like side jokes and end jokes by jeff and ethan <laughs> somehow find their way into this you know what was your motivation for that oh jeff was just joking around we put it right yeah. in there so overall what was the motivation for actually jumping back to lorena on this because up to this point we had her in chapter three and then we've been kind of referencing her as the antagonist and now we're back from her viewpoint both of the roles revolved around children yep And so I knew that I wanted to go back and do a chapter from Lurina's perspective. And if both of the roles had to be about children, then this was the perfect opportunity to do that. But I didn't want to introduce a Goonie squad of characters in the present. Yeah. So doing another sort of flashback chapter, similar to how you showed Danvers back on Delvorn before the shift, I figured doing a split where then we could use the the role about the utopia to sort of further the narrative about the Nemerus and about the Aquine that are still living underwater mm-hmm. and give Danvers a bit of context for what he's going to see down there. Mm-hmm. And then use that for something that Lorena could recall back to that would further her story about what's going on with how much agency she has with Verloff. Okay. Okay. Makes so, sense. yeah, I, I, the roles really dictate what's happening. And it maybe would have been more difficult to justify going to a Lorena chapter if both of the roles weren't about children. Mm-hmm. But when when roles like that come up, I just take it as a sign. And gotcha. it's like, okay, that's that's what we're going to make this about. Would you take it as your destiny? Yes, unfortunately. <laughs> I've been disproven. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Jeff, this was a really nice chapter. Thank you. Um, It really tied some ideas that have been flowing throughout the story together quite well. But I can't imagine that this just flowed out of your brain perfectly. I can only imagine that you had a little bit of self-doubt. It's the corner of self-doubt. Okay, so what was it, Jeff? The self-doubt in this chapter, well, first of all, writing it at campsites was very hard. (laughs) I wrote this on an iPod, at least half of it on an iPod at some campsites. The self-doubt came from how to tell a story like an origin story. So the Kilu's origin story about the Aquine from the perspective of a child while still having it give all of the information that you need, but 
it's really easy to fall back into sort of fantasy trope writing when you're talking about the history of the world. Okay. Like it's easy to just want to use words and phrases and ideas that even a very smart child would never use in describing such a thing. Yeah. So I wrote it and then looked at it and was like, this is absolutely not the way that this kid would tell this story. And I tried to do my best to get it in that voice, Mm -hmm. but I still had doubt about whether or not I was doing a good enough job or making it believable enough that like, this is the way that this story would be told. You know, how would a 10-year-old tell a Bible story sort of thing? (laughs) I'll tell you once I move back to Indiana. That's the next podcast idea is, yes. is, is, is stories from the Bible. Yeah. This kind of reminds me this, what you just highlighted reminds me of those uh, parents that'll post those like monologues that they're like three-year-old kids will say. And you're just like, that kid didn't say that. That's impossible. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about the new rules. Okay. The first new role is protagonist gets overzealous and makes a major mistake. Yep. And that is from a girl, her flat and cat on Instagram. Thank you very much for your submission. This is a great one because it it's it's great for like a climax or building towards the climax of a story. Yeah, there's a lot of plans that are kind of coming together and there's a lot of people trying to attempt big things and I, I'm, I'm excited. I hope we get this one relatively soon, to be quite honest. Sure. The other one is after a string of losses, a character begins to succeed only to jeopardize someone else's success. And that is thanks to Skull. Yeah, another good theme I like, because again, as we're looking at things, not everyone's going to be happy at the end of this story. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. quite obvious. And and this one plays right into that quite well. This also plays into the fantasy football conversation that we were having (laughs) earlier, because I was fishing for Fade Index submissions from my friends who are listening to the story. And Skull is one of them. And I kept asking him for things that could happen in the story, some ideas. And he kept giving me just really lewd, totally unused usable submissions and then we started talking about fantasy football and he said that his his fantasy football team this season was going to be just like the jacksonville jaguars and lose its first seven games and then at the end of the season turn it on and keep winning just to screw over somebody else's playoff chances (laughs) and i was like can i just use that as the fade index thing and he was like yeah i like it so i didn't add in the very first part of this, which would be in parentheses, like the Jacksonville Jaguars, <laughs> after a long string of losses. But just know that the subtext is that this is a is a Jaguars-flavored submission. <laughs> That's brilliant. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you like it, please click subscribe. Please leave us a review on the podcast listening service of your choice. If you like what we're doing, please tell a friend. That always helps. And uh, yeah, follow us on Instagram. Sometimes we post on Twitter, but not so much anymore. (laughs) Thanks a lot. Have a good season. (laughs) 